but we, we need a slightly different approach to encourage young people to go into careers that they'll enjoy, careers where there's demand and careers where they can be successful and those sorts of strategies are critical at the moment because they're going to be the foundation of future success. This is The Summit by Fearless Adventures. I'm Dominic McGregor and every week my co-founder David Nunes and I will be talking to inspirational leaders about their experiences as they strive towards their summit. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us here at The Summit. Here at Fearless Adventures we're interviewing lots of really interesting people who are on their journey to their own summit or maybe have already reached it. We're here with Tim Nunes who is the Managing Director for the Office of Investment and he's here to talk to us about the role he's had in Manchester, the levelling up of Manchester and now his new role. Welcome Tim. Thanks David, nice to be here. You've been now um, looking after investment for Manchester for, well, you've been in the, the business... Ten, set, ten yeah. years as chief exec, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, how's that been? Where did it start and <laughs> where, where are you now? So it started, um, I actually worked abroad for a few years and uh, wanted to come back to the UK, but with an outward-facing job uh, internationally. And uh, saw this advertised role at Midas. Um, I'm from Manchester originally, so the thought of sort of selling Manchester internationally, being outward-facing, was just perfect, really. So... Came back uh, 17 and a half years ago and uh, never looked back, really. Where did you go abroad? So I worked in uh, South Africa, uh, then Pakistan, then India oh, wow. um, for a while. So, yeah, quite a, a sort of, I know you're very keen on sort of open-mindedness, aren't yeah. you? And, uh, yeah, that opened my eyes dramatically um, to a completely different world, really. So yeah. hopefully I've been able to bring some of that back into how I behave and, and work at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole idea of travelling and seeing different people's opinions and way things done is probably one of the best things I've ever done. Mm. You, you've done the same? Absolutely. I mean, look, I think a lot of people, I mean, some of the people I went to school with in Blackpool have never left Blackpool. So, you know, you speak to them and they have a very different mindset about yeah. the world. And I think travelling is massively important, isn't it? Yeah. That's comparing it to the Golden Milo, isn't it? You know, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, honestly, we, we obviously love Manchester. I mean, give us a Manchester pitch. <laughs> I think... Looking at it now, it's about the people, yeah. it's about the talent, it's about the place, it's about, um, you know, we always say, obviously, we do things differently, um, and we genuinely do think we do things differently. It's about uh, how we partner with companies, how we partner with people, the sort of buy-in that you get from the city, both from public, private, academic sector, we really do align really, really well, and whether that's in sort of tragedy, as we've also seen around bombing and how people come together there, or whether it's on the flip side of that, you know, just raw ambition, whether it's sort of 30, 40 years ago going for the Olympics, uh, which would have seen absolute madness at the time, <laughs> uh, or now wanting to be, you know, Europe's top tech city, UK's leading green city, all these different things, you know, they're bold ambitions in there. I think the thing that's always stuck with me as growing up here and, and coming back here is that, that raw ambition and that feeling of, well, why shouldn't we? You know, what, what's stopping us? Why aren't we good enough to be the best? or better than anyone or anywhere else. And so I think we've always been able to sort of carry that forward in what we do as well as, as Midas. Yeah, and we all know that journeys are, are not straight. They're all up and down. So 17 years ago, when you walked in, what were you we in 2005? Yeah, Liverpool's won the Champions League. Yeah, um, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you ask most people in the UK, Birmingham was the second city. And that would probably be a very common answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how does that journey go over those 17 years? What were the moments where you realised that things were starting to work and that, you know, that kind of ambition of Manchester becoming not just internationally recognised, but probably nationally recognised as well? Because yeah. 2005 was a long way to go still for it to be actually being 
on the national radar for, for a lot of things. Yeah, he's probably been in sort of three or four stages in a way. And, and as you say, sort of when I first started, I, I concentrated on attracting financial services firms. When I first started, so I think my first project was Bank of New York Mellon. Um, and then coming into Manchester, which was quite a big deal at the time, actually, in terms of nobody in Manchester had heard of the brand because um, it was a city brand, really, or a New York brand. But it was a big deal in terms of that sector and actually understanding that a brand such as BMY Mellon would actually come out into a region. So we followed that up with a lot of the big financial houses in London. And to be honest, we were laughed out there, really, most of the mm. time, you know, to say that we were a serious financial services location. And, you know, most of them said... Were, were they in any other region at that point? Yes, yeah, so, um, they had bits and bobs really through acquisition. So they had mm. some some pieces in in Liverpool, but in Leeds as well from Tilney and various other acquisitions they'd made. Um, but mo- most of the most of the you know when we went round to the financial services companies, they were sort of saying, "Isn't Leeds the sort of leading financial services centre or Edinburgh?" You know, literally, we had no credibility really. But what what we did is we persisted. We we did our homework in terms of the. The different things that were happening in the industry at the time as well, looked at the regulations, what the barriers were uh, to what was going on and what the proposition was. And we developed a really strong proposition, actually. And then we just threw everything at it, Every, absolutely everything. We were using our, you know, any of our senior sort of leaders like you know, Jim O'Neill, who was uh, co-chair of Goldman Sachs in the end, but you know, any, any sort of people from Manchester originally or people that had been to university here, all our sort of cards we, we were playing, if you like. And gradually over about five years, and with the likes of BMY Mellon becoming more normalised and a success, um, the mood gradually shifted. Mm-hmm. And so certainly by, uh, I'd say, 2010-11, we were you know, actually thought of as equal to, if not above, some of those other areas in financial services. Uh, and then with the BBC relocation around the same time, which again we supported with the local authorities, then that started to be another momentum shift really. Mm-hmm. And that was more of a general perception shift, I think, mm-hmm. that you started to see. And I remember people asking questions at that sort of time. BBC actually did a survey to say, what's the second city? And you know, Manchester was regularly coming up top. Mm-hmm. Although again, if you ask people here as well, they'd say London as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it's, um, so I think... In 2007-8, we did an independent economic review for Manchester, which was really holding a mirror up to, to Manchester at the time, literally warts and all, to say you know, what we're good at, what we can potentially build on, and what we're really poor at. And, uh, but the ultimate aim of that was to achieve agglomeration in Manchester, which is something nowhere really outside London had massively achieved in the UK. And I think the real tipping point was over the last five years, we've genuinely seen agglomeration. And mm-hmm. that's almost historic because I've seen some of the things that traditionally Midas would, would be absolutely in the thick of but and need to be in the thick of to attract Manchester and Greater Manchester was not being as necessary for things to happen. You know, now one investment spawns another, spawns another, spawns another, and you're actually seeing that rolling investment happening and that sort of, you know, more... Um, more rapid and accelerated expansion and acceleration of the of the economy, and that's not necessarily anymore through intervention. Mm-hmm. It's just through natural mm-hmm. agglomeration actually happening. And I think when we when we were sort of forecasting or or trying to put that into you know, into motion in two thousand seven, it, it was still felt like a real pipe dream. But now, and, and again, you look at the city even over COVID. Look at how physically it's changed over the last two, three years, even during a crisis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So 
I think we've genuinely seen that agglomeration happen now. And um, for me, the future is potentially exponential for this city region. It really is. You see it. One of the big things I get backlash about Manchester is um, green spaces. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not here to address that. <laughs> I, I did tweet a reply to someone last night on exactly that to say, "Have you actually walked around that?" But obviously, you know the the, the rapid, rapid expansion of the city, mm. going up, going out, yeah, connecting it obviously has impacts on a lot of factors. How? how and you just mentioned about the future. How far ahead is the city thinking? Because I know that obviously the rail plan is twenty forty. Yeah. Is there a real plan up to up to there, or is that a, a stake in the ground for for people to get motivated by? No, I mean most of the strategies of the city point forward are at least ten years, mm-hmm. if not twenty thirty, like you say with the transport plan. And transport plan takes so long, partly because the money is spread over such a long period of time. And you know, like with HS two, it's it's pockets of money that come through treasury at different points, and it all depends on sort of one project finishing to enable another one to start. So. You know, HS2 effectively couldn't start until after Crossrail was finished mm-hmm. because it was sort of that budget stream Effect- effectively. always. Yeah, effectively. Started in But But you look at where revenue is going from Treasury into different transport projects and, you know, there are certain, obviously, hurdles to clear before the new, the next the new project can start or at least start to be budgeted for. So, so you have to think really far ahead in those terms. It's no good dealing with infrastructure when it's too late and when yep. you've got complete, you know, chaos. Yeah. Uh, and obviously we, we've seen a little bit of that in terms of the heavy rail infrastructure. Luckily, with something that's in our own gift, Metrolink, which is, um, you know, we're talking net zero as well. It's been using net zero electricity for 15 years. So it's actually a massive low carbon sort of success story, Metrolink. But we've always genuinely or generally been able to keep pushing forward with Metrolink yeah. beyond demand. And obviously it generates demand once it's in place. Whereas heavy rail, where we don't have that same control, it's, it's much more difficult. So I think so we, we do need to have really long-term planning. Skills is another massive area that we've talked about a number of times before, where, again, you need to plan far, far ahead because we're talking about kids that are sort of 10, 11, 12 now that we need to start looking at careers and careers that are in demand globally rather than sort of being driven by the market or by, you know, how media influence is what people want to mm. do. Uh, and therefore, but we, we needed a slightly different approach to encourage young people to go into careers that they'll enjoy, careers where there's demand and careers where they can be successful. And I think those sorts of strategies are critical at the moment because they're going to be the foundation of future success. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you look at, you know, the, the German mindset, you know, They've got no metropolis hub like yeah. we have with London. And, um, you know, we, we sit probably closer to France and probably the majority of European com- countries. What is the, 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 I guess, the mountaintop aim for Manchester uh, and then the regions in general? It, it depends on what period of time you're talking over, I think. I mean, you know, Manchester was the industrial hub 150 years ago and obviously shifted dramatically sort of up until 50, 60, or well, 40, 50 years ago when we started to see the recovery. So... You know, change is absolutely uh, possible. You're absolutely right, though. We're more comparable to France in terms of a heavily centralised economy. We're more so than France, though, even. Germany would be, I suppose, the panacea, but I'm not quite sure because just the way Germany formed, really, mm. you know, from a series of small sort of states um, meant that there's always been that sort of more even distribution uh, across the place. And 
it, you know, in Germany, you'll see that, it, as you say, each major city has got really balanced economy. You know, mm-hmm. each place has got a, a large media company headquarters. There are big industrial manufacturing company like a automotive manufacturer, whatever it may be. You know, it's really there's good high value um, activity in most of those places. I think you know the UK is, as we know, it's really well documented north south divide. But I think what we have to do is take the opportunity at the moment for leveling up to to reevaluate the industrial strategy nationally. So it's not for me. It's not necessarily just about moving moving the deck chairs around to to sort of distribute that way. Granted, we've been part of that with the BBC relocation. So there is there are times when some of that is successful, but. Uh, and I think particularly in the media like that, to get those regional voices and, and those references to the wider UK has been really important with the BBC move. Mm-hmm. But more generally, I don't think you can do that across all industry. So I think it's about looking at the new industries, the future industries. Zero carbon is one of those where those industries aren't formed yet. So there's no nothing to relocate. Mm-hmm. It's about investing where those where those industries can be seeded and can grow from scratch. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of industries like that that are still very early in their journey that with the right investment in the right places, we could see those industries grow really successfully in places that aren't London. And it's it's not about you know transferring financial services from London somewhere else. That's London should remain the financial hub. That's absolutely fine. But let's make you know Manchester the tech hub uh, of the UK or uh, you know Liverpool the logistics hub of the UK because it's got a port. So there's various different specialisms. The North East is doing incredibly well on the mm. EV side, for example, <laughs> uh, and obviously offshore wind and Humber side. So let's take some of those newer industries that actually, if we invest properly now, the years of non-investment in some of those places and yeah. old industries that are now you know, legacy, in legacy mode, let's forget the past and just concentrate on investing in the future and invest as ambitiously as the likes of Germany is, mm-hmm. but in those places in new industries. And then I think we could actually really see that rebalancing start to come, but it'll still take 10, 20, 30 years for those supply chains to really um, develop, grow value, and, and you know, become internationally competitive. Congratulations on your new role, heading up inve- investment for the whole of the UK now. It feels <laughs> like you're leaving Manchester in very good shape, and you know that's fantastic. What's your ambition for the UK on a global stage? You know, We speak to a lot of entrepreneurs on our podcast around you know, most of their investment in their companies comes from the US or eventually they believe their business will be sold to a US company because of valuations and scale. How do we change that narrative um, to make the UK, you know, the best place for tech businesses, not just to grow, but also to stay in the UK and almost become really big businesses um, in the UK rather than sort of sell out? Yeah, I'll just add to that as well. We've obviously seen some of the tech companies putting pauses on hiring at the moment. Um, and that I think is from what I've seen on the LinkedIn, obviously, is exponentially hitting the region areas versus on uh, San Fran, mm-hmm. that area. So, how can we have the decision makers, to David's point, based in the UK? Yeah, I mean, that's a really tough. One. I think the key is to look at capital, I suppose, on a global basis, whether it's UK or foreign to the, to the country. Um, whether we're going to ever change the, uh, if you like, philosophy of UK capital so that it behaves in a similar way to US capital is, well, it, it's not happened over the last 10 or 20 years, despite the fact that there's really good comparisons to make with how successful US capital's been. What do you think it takes to do it? Do you have a, do you have a view on that? I think it's a mindset. It's a mindset. I mean, the penny dropped for me when I went to Silicon Valley a few years ago, and you, you understand how the cycle works. It's quite a simple mechanism, really, I think, you know, in terms of just 
continually cyclical reinvestment, close networks, spotting opportunities, uh, essentially spread betting and backing good leaders and good um, and good technologies or ideas that then emerge from the pack. And then obviously once the hype gets around the serial investors that have gone in, then the value goes up, the reputation goes up, the other investors come in and the success story happens sort of in a way sometimes irrelevant whether the product or service is actually as strong as it's perceived. So it's about how, how we generate some of that cycle. It's a conversation I've had a lot in the Northwest here with you know, some of our really, really successful entrepreneurs, and obviously you two are a part of that. Um, but we have a, a real plethora now of what I would say ultra high net worths, really, from you know, success stories that are beyond anything we've seen probably for you know, since the Victorian era in terms of the scale of the companies that we're seeing now, rather than looking at things in a sort of a more private way with funds. You know, how do they become a bit more aggressive, a bit more open to, to investing, to driving growth? Um, because San Francisco, you know, not all the ideas come out of San Francisco at the end of the day. It's just become a place that obviously sucks that idea base in because mm-hmm. that's where the money is and that's where people with the philosophy to take a chance and, and go forward and invest is. And breaking down a bit of the um, reserved nature of the British sometimes to have the same sort of impact as, as certainly US capital anyway. So I, I think that's, that's quite a British trait, really. It's not going to change overnight. But I think how we blend the two could be really powerful because you know there's risk for US coming into the UK, a market that they don't know as well. There's a bit more confidence from UK investors to invest, certainly in places you know that aren't necessarily as globally known as other places around the world are so you know using that security of uk capital then backed by the less uh, risk averse capital of the us i think is a really well or other parts of the world is is a really good good sort of recipe for huge success here rather than just you know, cutting the uk side out every time that idea of this hybrid kind of uh, capital philosophy is quite exciting actually isn't it it could really you know the sustainability and the strength of that kind of uh, Risk management could be pretty pretty interesting, really. I think so, and there's plenty of capital in the UK. Yeah, yeah. You know, as as you you both know, <laughs> uh, and, and likewise the rest of the world as yeah. well. And um, you know, the problem is more about finding the opportunities, I think, than it is mm-hmm. about actually finding the capital. So if we can find the opportunities, then it's it's about the mechanism by which we can bring that capital to market, and uh, and that that'll be one of the big challenges. We live now in a completely global world. You know, if I'm a, a large corporate in Japan, for example, and mm-hmm. I'm, why the UK? You know, what role is the UK going to play? Are we really going to take the advantages after Brexit to be independent? Um, what do those look like? What's your view on all of that? There's a number of things. I mean, Britain traditionally has a number of globally recognised strengths, you know, whether it's our universities and therefore our sort of academic and science-based power. Innovation is obviously incredibly strong here, and that's a big part of Greater Manchester's sort of ongoing strategy as well in terms of economic development. Um, so, so that piece is is really, really solid. I think, you know, traditionally, Great Britain has also had a really strong reputation for fair trade, policy-based stability, trust. All of these things have been, you know, very, very strong, as I say, coupled with that talent and that innovation piece that we've always been very, very strong in. So, and likewise, you know, Sort of financially, the the UK has been relatively stable as well over this time, or comparable, you know, comparably stable. So there are many, many elements that still put us in that that category. I think what some of the, in particular, you know, if you take someone like Japan, 
what government's trying to do at the moment through the free trade agreements is obviously uh, increase the attractiveness of companies from specific markets to either come here or trade with other markets. So even, you know, there's an FTA with Australia now. We're obviously negotiating with um, with a number of other nations. Hopefully India will be one of the next, um, at least to have a framework agreed. You know, the interesting thing will be companies that want to come here based on the free trade agreements with you know, other destinations as well. Yep. Mm. That will be quite an interesting bit. And I think how the UK becomes that juxtaposition uh, in trading terms between certain markets that might not have a direct agreement mm. could be quite interesting. And I think that's the thing that we have to look at is um, through those agreements, how can we differentiate ourselves from the individual blocks themselves? Mm. Obviously, the national language business has been English for maybe the last 30, 40 years. Is there a risk of that disappearing and us being left behind? Because language, languages at schools, and we all go abroad, we are terrible at speaking <laughs> people's languages. Do you think that's a risk? Look, I'm a great believer in sort of cultural diversity. So I think the ability to speak multiple languages, I mean, my great-grandmother spoke 10 languages, I think. Wow. She was incredible. Um, but that's partly because she sort of, um, you know, moved around Europe and the Middle East, really. But so I think, I think the ability to communicate multiple multicultural environments is incredibly powerful but i don't think english is at immediate risk certainly i mean the us is still going to be you know, in the top two dominant economies in the world which mm. puts english from an american you know uh, economic point as a dominant language and uh, if you look at the rest of the western world certainly english is prevalent through that so although markets like china etc are obviously likely to take over the, the us but and likewise you know india again is rising up Rising yep. economic charts dramatically. English is the first language in India yeah. for historic reasons, uh, and again because there's so many languages in India that it became the common language to, to sort of counter that. But um, so no, I don't I don't see it being as ri- at risk, but I do see the benefit of people being multilingual. Mm. Certainly. What is your summit? Have you reached it? Are you still on the way there? <laughs> I'm hoping I've not reached. It. <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose this this new role, you know, this leveling up role, it, the, the summit will be. Can I have real impact in that levelling up piece? Um, you know, Greater Manchester has certainly come a long way over the last 15 years. And obviously, I've only been a small part of the overall team that's done that. But um, to be able to look at it nationally now and hopefully take some of the learnings that we've had here, some of the things that we know we need to do differently nationally in order to, to get more balance. Um, yeah, I suppose that, that would ultimately be my summit, is, is to feel like, you know, in a small part, I've been able to provide value to that agenda, really. Thanks, Tim. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion today. Congratulations on the new job, and I hope you can achieve the goal of really driving change for millions of people across the UK. So we'll be supporting you from here. So all the best. Thank you for listening. And if you get the chance, uh, like, share and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you.